It is a pleasure to be worshiping with you as we are continuing in this story, this story of these two brothers, this story of a family, this story that teaches us a little bit about what it means to truly be reconcilers. And so I think it's only right that before we study this text together, we take some time to allow God to prepare our hearts and our minds for the message he has for us. Would you please bow your heads and pray with me? Lord God, we give you thanks that you are indeed our teacher. It's your desire to instruct us, to teach us what it means to truly walk with you. And so, Lord, this morning as we come before your word, we ask that you would give us open hearts and minds to receive the message you have for us. And, Lord, I pray that the words of my lips and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O God, who is indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So something that often surprises modern people is just how human a book the Bible is. You see, many modern people, and I include myself in this number uh, before I came to faith, many modern people, when they come to a, a book like the Bible, a religious text, what they expect to find is some morals, some rules, and if we find stories, to find stories of people that we should uh, model our lives after, heroes uh, who are exemplars of the faith, saints that we should follow. And yet, often when modern people come to the Bible and they they open it up, what do they find? They actually find a very human book filled with people who are messed up, who are self-centered, who make horrible mistakes, who commit terrible wrongs. And oftentimes, they're baffled by this. They're just like, what is this book and, and why would anybody study it? Well, it's because we as Christians believe that the Bible is more than a self-help manual. We believe that the Bible is not simply a rule book for life. But rather, in the pages of the Bible, what we realize is we realize that first and foremost, the Bible is a mirror. It's intended to reflect us back to ourselves. That as we read through it and we read about these very, very human stories, we're suddenly realizing, wow, there's a lot in here that connects with my life and my story. That as we read through these pages, we quickly realize that we're no longer just reading the Bible, that the Bible is actually reading us. And it's showing us those things that oftentimes we don't want to see, those things that we would prefer to kind of table or have hidden. The Bible serves as a mirror. That's part of the reason it is such a human book, is it's telling the truth about who we are as people and how we often behave. But the other thing about the Bible that we believe as Christians is that the Bible is a lens. It's a lens by which we learn to see the world and see ourselves the way God sees us. It's a way by which even in the midst of these broken, messy, realistic, true stories that we encounter the God who in the midst of the mess is still bringing about healing and blessing and redemption. And that's part of the reason why we're studying that story that was read just a few moments ago, that story about Jacob and Esau. And part of the reason we're doing this sermon series called A Reconciler's Journey because we would like, we we desire that this scripture, that this story would be a mirror to us of how we handle relationships that are broken. But also that it would become a lens by which we learn to re-enter into those relationships in a way that actually brings healing and reconciliation. And so let's go ahead and recap what we've learned so far. Last week, we were introduced to the family of Abraham. In Abraham's family, God made a promise to Abraham. He said that through your family, all the families of the earth would be blessed. And yet, as we look at the story of Abraham and his family, we realize that they're a pretty messed up family. They're pretty dysfunctional. They have problems like most of our families do. 
And specifically, we've been looking at the story of Abraham's two grandsons, twin boys named Esau and Jacob. And what we learned about uh, Esau last week is that Esau is a hairy man. That's actually what his name means. It means hairy. And, And Esau is a hairy man. He's a wild man. He is a man of the wilderness. He is a guy who is known as a hunter, a man of the bow and spear, a guy who loves to live out in desert places and fend for himself. He is the Bear grills, the crocodile Dundee of his day. And probably the reason the narrator included this detail about him being hairy and being called hairy is because he wanted to highlight the fact that, that Esau, in terms of his character, is just like the animals that he hunts. He's got kind of a short fuse. He's a wild man. You never quite know what you're going to get with Esau. But then we are introduced to Esau's uh, twin brother, the younger of the two, and his name is Jacob. (laughs) Jacob's a little different than Esau. Jacob is a man of luxury and leisure. He's a man who loves to dwell in tents, who would prefer to cook a fine meal rather than hunt it out in the wilderness. These two brothers couldn't be more different. And I think it's tempting if you've been raised in the church and you've gone to Sunday school to kind of view this story with a Sunday school lens. To see Esau, the hairy man, as the beast, the the barbarian, the wild man, the the problem, the enemy, the antagonist in this story. And to see Jacob, you know, meek and mild, the guy who's kind of the hero of the tale. But to do so is not to actually read the story the way the story is intended to be read. Because what we quickly realize is that although Jacob is not the wild man Esau is, he is pretty wily. He's a guy who is a master of deception that he's got brains and is constantly calculating how he can get the best deal for himself. We see this actually in the very first interaction that it was recorded between these two brothers in Genesis chapter 25. It says that at one point Esau was out, came in from being out in the field and he was exhausted. Esau was out in the wilderness places, he was hunting, and he came home empty-handed. And you can imagine that after going on this hunting trip and and looking for food and for fresh water and not finding any of it, that he probably stumbles back into camp just wiped out and at the end of himself. And as he comes into camp, he kind of collapses and he realizes that his brother Jacob is cooking a meal. And he says, hey, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. And Jacob says, yeah, I'll give you some of the stew if you, you know, sell me your birthright. And at first it sounds like a little bit of brotherly banter, like, yeah, I'll give you this too if you just give me the inheritance, ha, 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 right? But Esau goes on, he says, what, I'm about to die. What use is a birthright to me? And Jacob says, swear it to me now. You realize Jacob's not kidding. He wants the inheritance. And his price is this bowl of stew. See, back in those days, the inheritance was always given to the firstborn. It meant the firstborn got everything, and Esau is the firstborn. Although they're twins, he came out first. So the inheritance is legally his. But Jacob, being a wily man, looking and seeing his brother's weakness, seeing his brother's longing and desire, capitalizes on this moment. Knowing that Esau already has a short fuse, that he's exhausted, that he's tired, that he's not thinking straight, decides this is my moment. And actually ends up stealing the birthright away from Esau by, get, by, by, by buying it from him for, for a bowl of soup. And Esau takes the deal. 
He eats it, he goes away, and actually the, the narrator doesn't let Esau off the hook. He says, in doing this, Esau despised his birthright to give it away so cheaply. But let's not let Jacob off the hook. He's a manipulative man who took advantage of his brother's physical and emotional weakness to get what he wanted for himself. And the story doesn't get any better because then later on in Genesis chapter 27, we hear that that this relationship is then taken to the next level. That as Jacob and Esau's father Isaac is coming to the end of his days and is elderly, he wants to give a blessing to the one who will be his heir. He wants to bless Esau as his firstborn. Now back in those days, the blessing of a father, the people believed that actually did carry spiritual weight. It wasn't just like your dad writing you a nice Hallmark card on your birthday. They believed that when he spoke something, a blessing over you, that actually would determine the rest of your life. And Likewise, to be cursed by your father was, was huge. It was a huge deal. And so, he, so Isaac tells his favorite son, Esau, he's like, go hunt for some food. You know the kind that I love. Bring it back here, and when you do, I will bless you. Well, Jacob and his mother, Rebecca, hear about this. And Rebecca, Jacob is kind of her favorite. And she says, this is your chance. We can deceive your father. And Jacob is just like, yeah, we can, but, but how? You know, he's, he might you know, feel my arms in the back of my neck, and I'm not a hairy dude like my brother. And she's like, leave it to me. I'll prepare the food and get it ready. Just you need to be ready to do your part and jump in and play the part of Esau. And so what they end up putting together is, is a performance worthy of an Oscar, and uh, Isaac and uh, Jacob ends up going into Isaac, who's, who's practically blind, dressed as his brother, pretends to be Esau, and Isaac ends up giving Jacob the blessing. And the result is that when Esau hears about this, he is enraged. And he actually says in Genesis 27, verse 41, when my father dies, I'm going to kill my brother. And Rebecca, their mother, overhears this, and she's like, he's not kidding. She knows that Esau would do it. You see, this story, because of Jacob's deceit and Jacob's deception, this already tense relationship between these two brothers has has hit its lowest point yet. To the point where Esau says, you know what, I'm going to wait out my days. And the moment dad is gone, I am going to deal with that little troublemaker. I am going to knock off that little heel grabber and give him exactly what he deserves. We look at that story and we're just like, man, those bridges are burned. There is no way there could possibly be any healing and restoration when you see the level of brokenness that is now dividing these two brothers. And we have to wonder, well, what can possibly fix this situation? Because I think many of us can think of relationships that we have in our lives that just seem so damaged. There's no way that it could possibly be repaired. What wisdom does scripture have for us? Well, there's something that the Bible talks about quite often, especially when it comes to broken relationships, whether broken relationships between us and God or between us and other people. And and the Bible uses a particular word, and that word is repentance. Now, we need to unpack this word repentance because I think we have a lot of modern notions about repentance that actually don't quite match up to what the Bible has to say about it. When we hear the word repentance, we typically think that it means uh, to say, I'm sorry. But that's what it means to repent, is to say, I'm sorry, and to apologize. Now, don't get me wrong. Saying I'm sorry certainly wouldn't have helped in this 
circumstance, right? If Jacob had gone back to Esau and he's like, hey, man, with that whole scoop and birthright thing, I'm sorry. That was, that, was a, that was stupid. That was a selfish move of mine. I know that you were hungry, and I apologize. Or even after the whole issue with Isaac, if he'd gone back to him, he's just like, I, that was terrible. That was wrong of me, and, and, and I, I don't want that blessing, and I ask for your forgiveness, and, and let's, let's go get you squared up with that. Saying I'm sorry would have helped. But that's not exactly what the Bible means when it talks about repentance. You see, there are two biblical words for repentance. The Old Testament word is shavav. The New Testament word is metanoeo. And here's what they mean. Shavav means to turn around. That's actually what it means. Metanoeo means to change one's mind. And so when the Bible talks about repentance, what it's talking about is, a, is a, an, an inner turning and a transformation. I love how the Baker Encyclopedia of the Bible puts this. It says, repentance is literally a change of mind, not about individual plans or intentions or beliefs, but rather a change in the whole personality from a sinful course of action to God. It's turning away from the direction that I'm going and what I have my heart and my mind set upon and rather turning toward God and his will and his ways. That's what repentance means. And I believe that if real repentance had been happening within this family, the conflict that we're reading about this morning wouldn't have even taken place. And here's why. Do you notice that every single person in the story has their own idea of what the blessing is and who should get it? Every single one of them. Uh, Isaac thinks that his favorite son Esau should get the blessing. Rebecca thinks that her favorite son Jacob should get the blessing. Both Jacob and Esau have internalized those messages and think that they should get the blessing. Every single person in this story has their own expectations about this relationship and how it should go down. And I think for us today, that is very telling. Because I think for us, when it comes to our conflicts and our tough relationships, we often bring the same baggage of expectations. That we enter into our relationships with certain expectations about how the other person should behave or what we're owed or who needs to apologize first or how we should fix this and move forward and so on and so forth. Each one of us has our own way, our own plan. And the result when that happens is that it often leads to even greater conflict. I love how Shakespeare put this. He said, oft expectation fails, and most oft where, uh, there where most it promises. Oft expectation fails, and most oft there where most it promises. What, what Shakespeare is saying there is he's saying, the greater the expectation, the greater the disappointment. And oftentimes the reason why our relationships with one another are so dysfunctional is because we have brought ungodly, unhealthy expectations into those relationships which poison it from the very beginning. Now let me be clear. I'm not saying that all expectations are bad. There are certain expectations that are good expectations. For example, if you're married, it's a healthy expectation to expect your, your spouse to be faithful to you. Likewise, to be a child, it's a good expectation to expect that your parents are going to provide for you and watch over you and teach you and help you to grow. These are good, healthy, what I would call godly expectations. But oftentimes in relationships, and especially with conflict, it, what's causing it is not godly expectations, but self-centered and selfish expectations. And the question in any conflict 
When we enter into that conversation is to ask ourselves the question, what expectations am I carrying into this? And are these God's expectations or are they my own? Are these God's expectations or are they my own? Because I will be honest, the vast majority of fights and conflicts that I have with my wife or that I have with, within our family or with my best friends often stem from the fact that I'm bringing a whole set of expectations into this conversation that have no right to be there. Self-centered expectations that they couldn't possibly meet and shouldn't have to. And what we see in this story is Isaac, Rebecca, Esau, and Jacob have all brought their expectations into this conversation, into this relationship, and it has poisoned it from the very beginning. Expectations that the firstborn gets the blessing. Expectations that it's the father's right to give it. Expectation that there's not enough blessing to go around. Expectation that I'm entitled to it. Expectation that I deserve it. So on and so forth. And what they've forgotten is who actually gets to give the blessing. Do you remember? All the way back in Genesis chapter 12, who gives the blessing to Esau and Jacob's grandfather? It's God. God says, I will bless you. I am the one who has the blessing to give, and and, uh, by blessing you, through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. It's not Isaac's right to give away that blessing, because it's not his to give. It's not Esau or Jacob's right to demand it, because it's not theirs and they don't own it. See, God says, the blessing is mine. I will give it to whom I will, when I will, and in the way that I will. And Isaac and Rebekah and Esau and Jacob seem to have totally missed that picture because they've been blinded by their expectations. This is where repentance is so desperately needed. It's a laying down of my expectations and a taking up of God's. It's a saying that what I have brought into this conversation is not healthy, is not right. So I lay it at God's feet and I ask, Lord, not my will but yours be done. That's the kind of repentance we're talking about, the repentance that was so desperately needed in this family and the repentance that was totally 100% lacking. What they needed was they needed a vision from God so that they could enter into their relationship and say, hey, the blessing is God's to give and God's alone. And because he is good and because he loves us and because he's watching over our family, let's let him do it in his way and his timing. How much heartache and pain And brokenness would have been saved if it had started from a place of humility and repentance rather than of selfish expectation. You see, the reality is is that we all do this, every single one of us. Scripture is a mirror. It shows us the parts of ourselves that we don't want to admit are there. And the truth is there's only one person who is totally captivated by God's vision from day one. One person who never needed to repent because he was fully consumed by the vision that God had given him, and that was Jesus himself. Jesus, when he was tempted by another vision in the Garden of Gethsemane, said, Father, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus, who was willing to lay down his life and what he wanted in order that that we might receive the blessing, the Father's blessing, It was that vision that allowed him to endure everything, being betrayed by his friends, falsely arrested, falsely accused, falsely tortured, falsely executed. 
but he endured it with joy and humility because he was so captivated by his father's vision of all the families of the earth being blessed that he was glad to lay down his life that we might receive life. You see, the blessing that we so long for, the love that we so desperately desire has already been given us through Jesus. He is the one who has blessed us and reconciled us to God our Father. Through him, that promise that was given to Abraham is yours. You are called by God's name. You are a child of God because of what Jesus has done for you. And when we understand that, that actually is able to transform how we enter into relationships. I love how the Apostle Paul puts this in Philippians chapter 2. Talking about how knowing this blessing from Jesus transforms how we approach one another. Listen to these words from Philippians 2, starting in verse 3. Paul writes, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, Jesus is the true and better Jacob, who doesn't enter into this world grasping at heels and trying to steal away his blessing. No, he's the one who, although he had everything, gladly laid it down so that the blessing might come to us. Who took on the form of a servant and in humility laid down his life that we might live. And what Paul is saying is he's saying, and if you know that, then you are able to re-enter your relationships with that same posture. That is the mind of Christ that's already been given to you. It allows you to enter into, it allows us to enter into our relationships with humility and a desire to serve. To take those expectations and to cast them at God's feet and say, Lord, not my will, but yours be done in this relationship. That really is the first step in reconciliation is repentance. Saying, Lord, these are all the unhealthy things that I'm bringing into this relationship. Forgive me and give me a vision of what this relationship could be. And then to pursue that with humility and a servant's heart as we interact with other people. Now, I'm not going to try to sugarcoat this. This isn't going to mean that it's easy. It isn't magically just going to wash away the conflict. But I think it will transform how we enter into it. Because it allows us to enter into conflict and broken relationships with peace and with humility with a desire to serve and to lay our own wants and desires aside, knowing that everything that we need is already given to us in Jesus. And then from that place of grace and wholeness, bring about light 
and healing in relationships that otherwise seem so broken that they couldn't possibly be fixed. I don't know what that relationship is for you. I don't know which one comes to mind. But the promise of this text is, is that if you lay your expectations at the feet of Jesus, he's going to give you a better way forward. And he's going to walk with you into the mess to bring about the healing that only he can bring. Because that is who he is. He is the great reconciler. He is the ultimate servant. He is the one who lays down everything so that we might have new life. Not just for us, but in our relationships with others. And it's with that in mind, I wanted to close this message in a word of prayer. Lord Jesus, we give you thanks that you didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped because you already had it. And yet you joyfully and willingly laid it down so that we might be reconciled to your Father and from there become ambassadors of reconciliation, ambassadors for you in a world of division and brokenness. Lord, forgive us for the unhealthy, ungodly expectations that we cling to. Help us to lay those at your feet where it seems so hard and, and, so, and we just feel powerless to do so. We pray you, Holy Spirit, would enable us to just lay those down and take up your vision for us and for our relationships. Lord, may that give us hope. May that give us peace. May that give us humility and a desire to serve. And Lord, we pray that through that, relationships would indeed be healed and made whole. And that all this would point to you as the one who is indeed the peacemaker, the prince of peace. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.